So this is Psalm 44, God's word to us this morning. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. And God, we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. And then verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our enemies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten, have gotten spoil. You have made us like a sheep, like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples all day long. My disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we've not forgotten you, and we've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from, our, from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget your affliction, our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Father, these are uh, powerful words. They're words of deep grief in the midst of having started this this poem with great celebration. And so we want to hear we want to hear what you were communicating and how you were working even in the midst of some very difficult times so that we might know better how it is that you're at work in our own lives when things aren't going as we like. Please Lord Jesus, show us what it means that you are a king and how you work out your kingship in our life, in our present moment, in the climate that we live in and we find ourselves. We need for your spirit to be the one that that not only teaches us and gives us a deeper understanding, but also changes us from the inside out, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Fran, Abby and I just finished a little series called... Insider? Is that what it's called? Insider? Inside Man. Inside Man. Yes, yes, yes. That was on, I don't know what it was on, Netflix? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not necessarily recommending this, movie, this, this show. It was a little bit uh, over the top, a little cheesy. But here's, here's kind of, without being a complete spoiler, if you do watch it, there's a priest in there who is so... Um, committed to, you might even say, has this ultimate allegiance to his family that he's willing to kill. 
it's just kind of a, it's kind of a bizarre story. But it is a reminder. It's something that I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about some of these lament psalms um, and what it means for God to be king. Our primary allegiance will determine how we live in the moments of life. If your primary allegiance is to some political philosophy or a political party or your nation or your family, if that's your primary allegiance, it will affect how you deal with the moments of life, especially when those moments are difficult, especially when hardship and suffering come. So we said last week, trusting God as king frees us to actually live his kingdom and his kingdom values in our present climate. And we said, well, why trust him? Why would we have any reason to trust him as this psalm is calling us to to trust him? And we said last week, because God's rule is for our good. One through nine is super clear. God's rule is for our good. There's a legit reason for trusting him because his rule is good. Now we get to this section. And a reason to trust him is also because his rule is counterintuitive. So his rule is counterintuitive. This is one that if you've been around us much as far as what we have been with the town church and if you've heard people really talk about the gospel, we, you hear things like it's an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down way of living. And the psalmist is describing how this is upside-down. Because having laid the foundation for trusting God as king, hearing that we can experience and, and hear the good rule that he has for us, the legitimate good rule, we get to verse 9 and you get whiplash. It's like this radical 180-degree turn where the psalmist jumps from this great celebration to lamentation. And we've been talking some about lamenting and lamentation from some other psalms over the last uh, month or so. With this, though, this is almost more raw than any of the other ones that we've read so far, up to this point. Because it really seems like he's blaming God for everything, doesn't it? That doesn't sound unfair with what we just read. He says, and he kind of has three movements because he talks about the downfall and then the injustice and then his cry. He says, you've rejected us. You've dis- you have disgraced us. You made us losers in the sight of the nations. You made us like a slaughtered animal, scattered us. You sold us. You did this, oh God. That's what he says. And all of this has come to us, though we've not done wrong. He says, I haven't even done wrong. We've not forgotten you. Our hearts have not turned from you. Our steps have not departed from your way, yet you've broken us. You've covered us, he says, with the the shadow of death. And then he he goes into chapter, uh, verse 23 and following. Wake up. Hey, hey God, are are you asleep? Wake up. Don't reject us forever. Why do, you, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction, our oppression? Why do you forget our pain? Our soul is bowed down. We are in the dust. We are becoming one with the ground. The image there, you came from the dust. I'm returning to the dust, and I am in my life. I am going back into the dust. I'm dying. Rise, help us, redeem us for the sake of, sake of your steadfast love. So how do we understand this accusing of God? Because he's accusing a God of rejection, of injustice, of being asleep. Get out of bed. He's accusing God of this while pleading for God to rise and redeem because of his steadfast love. How in the world does this help us trust God as a king? 
I mean, really? We're going to look at this as a reason for trusting God as king? Because all that was said in verses 1 through 8, that made sense why we, why we should trust him. But this? How does this help us? Because his rule is counterintuitive. It's not what we might expect. We got we to look at this in its context, but also in the broader context of the whole story of the Bible. Why might this help us? Well, I want to say a few things. I got three. And if you have your, your worship thingy, I've got an outline there that has a lot of stuff in it. And we're going to kind of follow through this because it helps us walk through the text. How, how does this help us? Well, it helps us because we realize that he works in our suffering he hears our suffering, and he, is, he experiences our suffering. I just want to walk through each of these. He, he works in our suffering, and he works in our suffering actually for us. What happens when you go through hardship? Okay, I'm, I'm going to actually ask you to answer that question in a second. But the first thing that you often think of when you go through hardship is it can tear you apart. It can break you down. Now, depending on how bad the hardship is, right? If it's not that bad, it probably doesn't tear you apart. But you go through real difficulty, it can tear you apart. It can destroy you. We've, maybe we've experienced that before, but we've certainly seen it happen to other people. But it can also, also, it can do good for us. Can't it? All right, this is where I am going to invite you to respond if you're willing to. Thinking about hardship or suffering you've been through, have you seen or can you see good that's come out of it? And would you be willing to share anything? You don't have to. Let's start with this. Have you ever seen good come out of your hardship? Okay. All right. And and maybe you're in a place that's like, maybe you're in such a dark place right now, you say, no, I I can't see any good. That's fair. Be honest. The, The psalmist is saying that. That's how the psalmist feels. But if you do, if you have seen, can you, can you say something good that may have come out of it? I mean, one thing for me is that it gives me empathy for other people's suffering. Okay. <clears throat> have you all experienced that? Like you go through something and now when you watch someone else go through that? I know for me doing that, I can be somewhat judgmental of watching someone go through suffering and how they handle it until I go through something similar and then I realize, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, empathy. Anything else? I think strength, strength to face future sufferings. Like when something else comes along, it's not quite as bad as maybe it would have been if you hadn't already gone through something. It's kind of, it is training, right? I mean, in some ways, that's why you train for a marathon, say. You don't just go run a marathon. You suffer day in and day out so that when the, when the big thing comes or the next thing comes, something has already started happening in you to make you ready. I think it's a helpful thing. Were you saying something? Sorry. Refining fire. Okay. Purges some things out. What kind of things would you say it purges? And not just you, but anybody. Like the idea of it being a refiner's fire, right? That's a 
That's an image hopefully some of us are familiar with. What kind of things does it burn? Probably motive and desire. Priorities. Hmm. Yeah, there's something about the, the suffering that helps you maybe see what I thought was most important maybe isn't, or the way of doing life, maybe it kind of burns that up. Something I would encourage us to keep thinking about, because this is helpful, this is, this is important if we're going to understand how God is king in suffering. Because when we look at this, this, this is... The psalm doesn't so much, this particular psalm doesn't do this. So this is why we have to back out of the psalm, this particular psalm, and see how this is elaborated and explained more throughout the rest of the Bible, and specifically in the New Testament. So we could look at lots of different places where the New Testament in particular talks through this. Many, many passages deal with suffering and trials and persecutions and how they can be used for good in us and how it kind of, connect, when we are, connected to God. So here's, here's one. It's this Romans chapter 5. And we could go, you could probably go to almost anywhere in the New Testament and find something like this. Romans chapter 5 says this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And he goes on to explain that. So what he's saying is rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. Not because suffering is good, like you like it, but if God is king, he is at work in the midst of it, doing a good thing. So we're going to put that out there. Lots of other places we could look. God can work in our suffering, even in what is called weakness, for us and for our good, for our growth, as we trust him. But he can also work in our suffering for the good of other people. Jesus says, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5. This is coming to the end of the Beatitudes. I'm going to read the beginning of those later on. But the end of the Beatitudes, he says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you. This is not the way we think. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes straight into this. Rejoice in this persecution. You are salt of the earth. And he goes on, you are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Sometimes I think we take the image of being salt and light, like that's a popular thing that Christians talk about, or to be salt and light. I think sometimes we take that out of its context. What is its context right here? What, when, when are we salt and light from the Beatitudes? Did you catch that? When everybody's treating you well? When you're, yeah. Under oppression, under persecution, under suffering, that's when we are salt and light. God can work in our suffering, yes, for us, but he can also work in our suffering for the good of other people. 
So that's, that's kind of backing out of Psalm 44. I want to move back towards it and see how this also helps us realize this is, this is not just mechanical. Like this isn't God, God's going to throw me through the meat grinder because he comes out, I come out as ground beef on the other side. And isn't this fun and good? This isn't some mechanical process that he is doing here. He's, he's using these hardships, not just for a utilitarian purpose, but also because he hears our suffering. Meaning what? Well, the, the accusations about, about God and the pleading for God is done out of this deep belief that he hears and that he is about, in his hearing, caring for us and connecting with us. So God, God rules by hearing. God rules by listening. This one's striking me as I've been thinking about it the last couple of weeks. God actually rules by listening to us because he cares. That's how relationships work. I was talking to an acquaintance friend of mine this past week, and he's doing some class. He's, he's a pastor in another church. He's doing some class with people. And he made the comment about how guys are really not good about building friendships. A deep, genuine... Somebody just giggle? <laughs> guys aren't great about building deep friendships because... Here's my reflection as he was talking about it and we were talking about it, in part because we don't know how to talk to each other. And in part of not knowing how to talk to each other, we don't know how to listen to each other. And this isn't just a guy thing. Maybe it's guys tend a little bit in that direction. But this is a human problem. We have a hard time listening. Relationships don't work very well if we can't hear one another. And this, of course, means we need to hear God, right? But I'm not talking about that part. I'm talking about we need God to hear us. If, God can't, if God's not hearing us, it's going to be very hard for us to live in a relationship with him. And if we can't know that he's hearing us, it's really going to be hard to have his rule in our life, his, his kingship ruling in our life. There's something about knowing God hears and knowing that God, knowing God cares, that then connects us, that opens our heart, our life to him, but also opens his heart to us. So this next part, and this is where I've got several items in this, on your sheet of paper. What, what about our suffering might actually connect our heart with God? What do we see in this accusation and this plea? So I'm just run through, and you could probably list some other things, but these are some things that stood out from this particular passage. What is it that, that he's describing that might actually be not only an expression of his heart, but also might be an expression of God's heart? Well, the first is this. Hardship exists. The Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, is honest about hardship. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't gloss over the conflict that he sees and that he experiences. Trusting God's rule is not about putting your head in the sand and calling bad good. Oh, isn't life wonderful? It's not, it's not that. It's honest and it acknowledges life as it is. Following him doesn't mean all things will go as we want or all things will go as they should or pretending that all things are okay right now. That's, that's not how this works. This truth that hardship exists actually connects us to reality. 
the reality the rest of the world sees and the reality that we need to see, but it also connects us to God. And in this, there's this assumption that, the second thing, forces are at work opposing good. The psalmist is deeply elaborating on this. These forces are bigger than us, but they work in and through others like us. And sometimes they actually work through us. There's this, deep, there's this other dark thing that exists in our universe, and it embodies itself in human beings and human communities. And the psalmist is, is saying this, he's talking about this, complaining to God about what we experience as bad and unjust or evil is a gut response to things legitimately being wrong in the world. And this, this perspective that God's way of ruling does not or should not look like what he's describing, because he's saying, it shouldn't be, my enemies shouldn't have this kind of control over me. They shouldn't be able to do this to me. He's, he's saying this. It's an indication that something else, some other force, some other power is at play in the world working against God's good rule. Therefore, he goes on to say, we are desperately needy. Though he is crying out to God, he's even blaming God in this vulnerability and his weakness. At the same time, he is desperate for something beyond his ability. He's desperate. I mean, that, that plea, I mean, that is clear from the text. His vulnerability exposes this desperate need. Trust and surrender, especially surrender of your whole life, often comes when our need is exposed. Surrender comes not because you have figured it out and you're in control of your life, but you realize that you can't control your life. When we realize we are not enough or we don't have what it takes, that our self-rule is not cutting it, our need is exposed. Hardship opens us to this desperate need. From, from that, his complaint moves into verse 17 to describe that injustice is wrong. It's understandable that bad would come to them if they had turned from God, because he talks about that. It's like, I get it. Like, if we had turned from you, I, I totally understand. Totally get that. That's a recurring theme. This is actually a recurring theme in the Bible, when people have turned from God, and there are consequences to that. There's death and decay as a result of us turning from God. Right? That's all over the Bible. That's all, all over our experiences. But here, from the psalmist's vantage point, that's not what he's going through. That's not the case here. He says, we are innocent. We are innocent sufferers. We are in the right. We are in the right relationship with you. We haven't even broke the, we haven't broke the covenant, God, but injustice still came to us. This is not right. This is not fair. This is not how it's supposed to be. Hardship can come to us. This is, we got to think about it for ourselves. Hardship can come to us because we bring it on ourselves. Like, we need to own that. And we need to honestly evaluate our lives and where might that be the case. Like, if you can't stop smoking meth and you lose your teeth, there's kind of a natural response. I mean, that's a, you kind of did that to yourself, right? But there are other reasons that we don't always understand for why we suffer in life, in relationships, and reputations, even when we're being persecuted and we've done it right. We've been in right relationship. Injustice is not how life is supposed to be. 
So he moves on towards the end of verse 23, and he says, it's also that help must come from outside. Help's got to come from outside. He's upset about all that, that this happening. Though he turns to blame God, he also turns to God for help. This is the counterintuitive paradox. He's yelling at God while he's crying out to God for help. Like, why all this? Why waste the time yelling out at God? Because he believes he needs help from outside of himself. And he believes that God hears and can handle the complaint. He actually believes that that's the case. This is not an insignificant reason to trust God as king. This is not insignificant that God hears and he can take your complaint. He can take your yelling. That's not insignificant. That's not an insignificant reason to trust someone. It's very significant. Because as we do this, we honestly complain and plea. We are actually, first we're reorienting, reorienting to reality. Right? Hardship does exist. Forces are at work opposing God. We are desperately needy. Injustice is wrong. Help must come from the outside, which also, therefore, reorients us to God himself. And it reorients us actually to God's heart. Help must not only come from outside. Hope for help is based on God's character. This is how he ends which is also this reorienting us to, to the heart of, of God. Help, help has got to come from the outside. The, the hope of God helping is not, it's not motivated. It's not based on their innocence and goodness. He does talk about his innocence, but he doesn't base or ask God to be motivated to care for him because of his innocence. That's not the basis. Instead, he says the hope comes from his character, which he calls his hesed. It's his steadfast love. Steadfast love. The underlying hope is God hears and he moved to act for the sake of his love, out, out of his love. In our suffering, it's God's love that connects us to himself, and it's God's love that's the basis for ever trusting him. At the end of the day, why ever trust this is what the psalmist gives us. It's has his steadfast love. We can trust him because he works in the suffering. We can trust him because he hears our suffering. But most personally, we trust him because he experiences it. And again, this is stepping outside of the psalm itself. Remembering it's in the context of a much longer narrative. People experiencing hardship and suffering and trials is the story of the whole Bible. It's a story of especially the Old Testament. Well, not especially, including the Old Testament. It's a story there. It's the story of human, the human history. Suffering is. This is often the consequence of the wrongs that are done. Yes, absolutely that's true, but it's not always the case because we get moments of people suffering for unknown reasons or unjust reasons when they have done right. We can look at history and we can see that. And you can definitely look throughout the Bible. This is the story of many of the prophets or the servant leaders throughout the biblical story. And we could just go through tons of different characters. Let's start with the first guy that got killed, who was Abel. Why does Abel get killed? Well, because he was, he was in the wrong, right? 
No, if you know that story, he was killed because he had done right. His brother didn't like that he had done right. Then you go to, to Noah in the flood situation. All right, he suffered a fair amount, I'm sure, in his scenario, in his situation. Then you have the iconic example in the Old Testament, which is Job, the sufferer, the, 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 true, the suffering servant, right? What did he do to get what he got? Then you look at Abraham, um, Tamar. Well, there's a jacked up story for you right there. Go read Genesis 38. That is a messed up story. And that is one woman who is, who is deeply suffers because of wrong done to her. Moses, another character, Naomi, Ruth, husbands die. They're left basically for dead and they're suffering. And they are the lineage, lineage by which King David comes. David uh, is another character, suffers. Esther, then most of the prophets, you look at Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, these are characters that know what suffering is like. None of these were fully innocent. Okay, I'm not promoting them as the ones who are fully innocent, but there were times they suffered, they were rejected, they were disgraced, not because they did anything wrong or they turned from God, but because they were walking with God. They suffered because they were walking with God. They were trying to align with God. They were submitting to God's rule. They were doing good for others. That's why they suffered. It's the way God rules. It's the way his kingdom is lived out. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is, I don't think it's illogical, but I think this is something beyond logic, above logic that is just the reality. So going back to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, he begins this way. He begins saying, okay, what, is the kingdom, what does the kingdom of God look like on earth as in heaven? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and they thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Going on, what we already read, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the nature of the way, this is the nature of God ruling. He rules this way. It's upside down. It's counterintuitive. And this all comes to a head when you reach the ultimate suffering servant. You come to Jesus. Because as we watch him enter the world, we watch him be mistreated, even hated. This happened from actually before he was born, but at his birth, right? There's no room for his mama in the end. This is the beginning of his life. When Herod tries to kill him as a baby and they have to flee, he's not even safe in his own land. And then as he grows up and you watch leaders that are dealing with him, people, people reject him. Even it seems that his own family thought he was crazy, at least for a season. And in the end, when, when he was turned over by his friends to his enemies, he was unjustly tried, and he was mocked, and he was beaten, and he was executed. Jesus could identify with this psalm. You have rejected and disgraced me. 
the, the enemies have overtaken me. Those who hate me have gotten my spoil. Think about that. I think that's why, I think all the gospel accounts talk about when Jesus is on the cross, what do they do with his clothes? They take his spoil, right? Here, John 19 says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. See whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. He's quoting Psalm 22 there, but he could have just as well quoted Psalm 44. Jesus had every right to complain to God. As he experienced innocent suffering, he became like a lamb led to a slaughter. But instead, he he took our complaint. He took our complaint against God, our blaming and our hating of God. And he takes our curse by taking our cursing. All of this is, this is a disaster. I mean, clearly, God is out of control, right? This must be outside of his, this, how can God be ruling in that situ- situation? Why, why, does, why does he reject the, the only truly righteous one, his own son? Hand, why does he hand him over to his enemies? Why does he do such a thing? This, this, this is proof he's not in control. Or is it? This is actually the way he chose to rule. For our good, by stepping into the place of the psalmist, by stepping into our place and experiencing hardship, he experienced the forces of evil that oppose good. He experienced desperate need. He experienced injustice so that he could be the help from the outside and the character of God's love. This is how he made a way for forgiveness and restoration by experiencing and absorbing the curse of his death and absorbing the curse in his death and returning blessing in his resurrection. That is a story of God being king. There are no other, I don't know of any other stories like that in the world. This is how the king of kings who made and created all things said he is going to rule because he blamelessly walked through suffering, rejection. He walked into hell and death and was vindicated on the other side by his resurrection. How now shall we live in his kingdom? How now shall we live under his rule? How do we live out his rule? Let me just say this. It begins by trusting him. If you want to live in his rule, you've got to receive the way he rules, which is him serving you, suffering for you, dying for you, returning life to you. And then following him, let his rule for us work in us, but let it also work through us so that we can live like him toward the world and in the world. In your suffering, when it feels like God is absent, 
when you feel like he's abandoned you, maybe that's when he's drawing closest to you. Maybe that's when he's ruling in you and showing himself through you to the world. Father, you are like no other. We understand that in just logical ways, the fact that you have made all things and you've made us. But man, Lord, when we encounter this story of you becoming the suffering servant, and this is the way that you rule, you, actually, you really do rule in the midst of hardship. You're not out of control. And you will work through this and you will bring us all out the other side to a glorious new day where there is no more crying, there is no more tear, there is no more suffering, there is no more sorrow. Thank you that that is our ultimate hope. And you will be king on that day, but you are no less king right now. Please, Spirit, impress that on us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.